If you have a Bible with you, uh, you can open it to Haggai, the third from the last book in the Old Testament, as we start to round the corner in our study of this book. Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, this is verse 10, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered, knowing it was a rhetorical question, the answer is what? No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body, touches any of these, does it become unclean? Again, a rhetorical question, and the priest answered, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. I stumbled across a prayer that I'd read a number of years ago, and I thought I would just share it with you. thought you might appreciate it. It goes like this. Dear Lord, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy or grumpy or nasty or selfish or overindulgent. I haven't coveted my neighbor's spouse or even taken your name in vain. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, it's going to be a battle for me, so I'll need your help. Thank you. Amen. Haggai, the hammer, sort of comes out of nowhere in 520 B.C. to a group of Israelites who had traveled from the area of Babylon under the realm or the empire of Persia, having been given the permission to go back and build their temple. They, were, they had a great celebration. They laid the foundation with great pomp and circumstance. And then through a series of reasons of culture and, and uh, their enemies, uh, because of comparing, they just stopped. Everything just stalled out. And for 16 long years, the temple ground, the foundation just laid there until Haggai comes around and he says twice in chapter 1, consider your ways. Hence the theme of this series of messages. And so with that challenge to them, if you'll recall, he says in chapter 1, look at you, you're you're padding your own life and you're doing nothing for my house. Sat there, nothing going on. And as a result, they obey. In fact, the scripture says from the top down, from Zerubbabel to Joshua the high priest, Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, right down to all the remnant of the people that were there, they obey. And then God stirs their hearts. And we made a big deal out of that. That you ought to just obey God. Then he'll stir your hearts, Remember? And if you'll recall, we, in 
at the beginning of chapter 2, even so as about a month into it, you know, they're starting to put some bricks down. It's starting to, you can kind of see the superstructure going up and the old codgers who were whining the first time when they laid the foundation are still whining because it's just not going to be as big as the last one. And Haggai says to them, look, you've got, you've got my power, you've got God's power, you have his presence, and you have his future promises. That should be good enough. And besides all of that, what you have before is not to be compared with what God has for your future. And now, beginning in verse 10, a couple more months have gone by. The superstructure is going up even more. It's Christmas time. And a new danger has arisen. One that is as practical as any for us today. It is the danger of presumption. The thinking that has pervaded every generation of God's people right down to this present hour. The idea that if I'm around that which is holy, therefore I myself must be holy. And so Haggai uses a very simple illustration from the law. He gathers the priests. They would be the ones who would know about this more than anybody. And he just asks a couple of simple questions. You know, you know, if I take that which is consecrated, that which is holy, and I touch that which is unholy, does that make that which is unholy holy? Well, no. Okay, but if I take something that's not consecrated, that's unholy, and I touch that which is holy, does that make that which is holy unholy? Well, yeah, it does. And Haggai uses a well-known illustration from the law itself to picture what's going on in their own lives. They were presumptuous people. They were around now that which was holy and thinking themselves to be holy, but they were not. There, There was still a lot of work, just like in your life and in mine, right? When our family got together for Mother's Day last week, we just, everybody, not everybody, but, you know, even half of our family is a lot of people. And uh, so we're all together, and the kids, and I had one of the grandkids who's especially affectionate with me, and I picked him up, and he just cuddled with me, rubbed his cheek into my cheek, and we just, he, it was just a very affectionate time. And I found out later that he had just a little pink eye. So, you know, I have to tell you that the very first thought that came to my mind was not, I wonder if my healthy eye will make his eye better. That wasn't what came to my mind. That was not what came to my mind. And I didn't get pink eye. Thank you, Jesus. Haggai's illustration here is so basic, you have to be almost blind to miss it. The basic principle of life that healthy things do not make unhealthy things healthy In fact, just the opposite is is the case. And spirituality is not nearly as contagious as sinfulness. That's why James Boyce said, holiness is an isolated virtue, he says. It's not communicable. This is the great delusion uh, amidst many Christian households today. That merely, you know, being around that which is holy makes you holy. But there are many illustrations in Scripture to prove otherwise. You remember the story of Uzzah, 
who, who grew up literally around the ark which had been captured. Then, they, then it finally got back into the hands of the, of the Jews and it was finally into the house of Abinadab. And that was Abinadab and that was his dad. He, Uzzah grew up around the ark. He literally grew up around the ark. And so when Dave, by the time David comes around and the ark was going to be moved into the city of David, they carried it that way. They didn't do it right. But when it did tip and start to teeter, Uzzah just very naturally reached out and touched the ark. I mean, he'd been around that, which was holy all of his life. And God struck him dead. Just because you're around that which is holy doesn't automatically, by osmosis or whatever you think it is, make you holy. And it's a great delusion in Christian homes. I talked to somebody just the other day, raised in a Christian home, so to speak, but could not identify any time in their life when they were converted, when they were very genuinely turned from their heart to God through his son Jesus, was never saved. They failed to realize that being around unholy things, actually, the Jews failed to realize being around unholy things had actually rendered them unholy. I was thinking about this. I thought about John chapter 1 where it says, as many as received him, to them God gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now watch this. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Please note what we're told there. One must receive the Lord Jesus to become holy. It's not because you were, your bloodline got you there. It's not because of the will of your own personal flesh. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, right? But according to his mercy that he saves us. And it's not of the will of man. That, that, that's, that's moms and dads wishing, wondering, I, I was there, you prayed the prayer, I prayed the prayer with you, you're saved. That doesn't save anybody. Unless their hearts are converted. They are not converted. Unless your heart is converted, you are not converted. And you're certainly not holy. The Jews of Haggai's time were deluded into thinking that merely being around that which is holy made them holy. They failed to realize just the opposite was true. Holiness is not communicable. But sin is. (laughs) We get that, don't we? Right? The culture of that day and our own, the materialism of that day and our own had greatly contaminated them, is greatly contaminating us. I talked to a great man of God a few years ago whose kids, just a great man of God, godly man, whose kids were just a wreck. All of them were a wreck. And I said, what do you, I said, if you could just go back and do one thing different, what would you do? He goes, I would keep them from hanging out with the garbage they hung out with. And you know, that's easy to, it's easier said than done, isn't it, moms and dads? But yet you have the scripture, he that walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will what? Be destroyed, suffer harm. Bad company corrupts good morals. But this principle has been around forever. And God is constantly trying to, in the Old Testament and in the New, get this into our system that sin is communicable. Holiness isn't. In fact, back in 1847, a Hungarian 
obstetrician by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis, Semmelweis rather, developed the hypothesis for germs. It was a hypothesis. He, they didn't have a means in 1847 to look at germs so as to come up with what you know, Louis Pasteur you know, came up with the theory of germs. But Semmelweis was the first one to hypothesize it. He was an obstetrician. And in his hospital, how would you like this, ladies, who are expecting? 18% of the women who went in there to have children died. 18%. That was normal. So two out of ten women were dying before they could get out of that hospital. And he thought, well, this is probably not a good thing. Interestingly, in a Jewish hospital very nearby, only about 1% to 3% of the women were dying. So he tried every means of trying to figure out what was going on. He'd turn women on their side, and he'd do all kinds of things, but he just wasn't able to figure it out until he started to just observe the medical students that were in this hospital. And he watched these medical students go from cadavers doing autopsies of dead women, and they would go and they would wash their hands in a bloody vase of water and then wipe their hands on a shared towel and then they go over and do pelvic examinations on the women that were expecting to have children. Now I know what you're thinking. You've got to be kidding me. This was a hospital? Yes, but the whole, I mean, in those days, they didn't understand the power of sin-generated germs, much less been able to see one. And so he watched this, and he, he, he thought, well, let's just have them wash with some chlorine in between. You know, it might be a good idea between the cadavers and the live ones. Within three months, down to 1% mortality rate. And yet he was considered a crazy man because they couldn't prove it. He would eventually be called the savior of mothers. But his discovery quote-unquote, was actually already woven in to the Jewish ritualism. This is the reason why the Jewish hospitals had such a low mortality rate. Numbers 19, if you read, don't go there, but if you read, you can mark it down. You read Numbers 19, you'll, you'll read about these waters of purification. And when you read it, you, you, even us, when you do a cursory reading, you think, well, this is really strange. You need, uh, you got to have a little ashes of a red heifer and uh, and hyssop, and cedar, and some scarlet, or wool. But the a- ashes is what brings about, is, what you, is how you get lye soap. And hyssop and cedar were natural antiseptics. And the wool would have been like pumice, like in lava soap. Numbers 19 is basically... An antibacterial soap prescription. Well, what do you know? The point is that God always knew the power of sin-oriented germs and how transferable they are, but the same is true of sin itself. Whereby one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, right? So death did what? It did what? It transferred. It passed. It's communicable upon all men because all sinned in Adam. But again, not so holiness. It comes to us from God. Cake, box, 
Christianity is not found in the Bible, you know, where you just follow the recipe, you know, you throw it all together, you put it in the oven, and it's going to be a cake, amen? And you do everything, you raise your kids for God, you pray with them, you pray for them, you discipline them, you appoint them to God, and it's just a given they're going to know God, amen? Where is your concept of sovereignty? This is where every parent and grandparent must be on their faces before God that his mercy, as it was in your life, might be shined on your kids. Now, if you'll, we pick it up in verse 15, because this is the so what of the passage, the, the balance of this 15 through 19. He says, now then, consider from this day forward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to heap a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there's only 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month since that, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. Three times in this passage, three times, he says, consider from this day onward. Consider from this day onward. From this day forward, it, it's Haggai's mantra. Harkens us back to chapter 1, right? Consider your ways. Consider your ways. But now he wants you, in, in doing this, he wants, us, he wants us to look behind us. He wants us to look at the present moment. And he wants us to look into the future. So he says, look behind you in, the, in verses 15 through 17. From whence you came. In fact, if you've got a Holman translation, it says in verse 15, now reflect back from this day. That's the idea here. And if you'll notice at the end of verse 17, he says, in spite of you know, all of your Herculean efforts, you know, work in the fields, work in the trees, work in the olive trees, work in the pomegranates, work in the, the vines, the vineyards, Kind of a meager output, huh? Remember chapter 1, you're making money, you're putting it into a bag, it's got holes in it. How's that working for you? And he's reminding them to look back at how it wasn't working. But he also says, and yet you did not turn to me. Which is very interesting because it's telling us here that God did not allow the hardship into their lives just because they were being naughty, so to speak. God is constantly attempting to get us to turn back to him. But they wouldn't do it. It says they would, they had, before then, now they have, but he's telling them to look back. During that time, during all that hardship, did you turn back to me? Of course, the answer is no. And he's, he, wants, he wants them to remember that it's a little bit like that psalmist that says, it's vain for you to rise up early, to stay up awake, for so he gives his beloved sleep. It's, it's, a, it's a description of a workaholic. 
Those of you who are workaholics, you can't take a break, all you're doing is describing that you don't really trust God. I don't care how much you say you do. You're not. And he's, he's hearkening them to look back. And they, in spite of all that God had, was trying to get them to turn back, they weren't turning back. That's why Haggai the hammer comes along. And this should have been their their aha moment, so to speak. Because God is constantly working to turn us. He's constantly working to turn me. If you're a Christian resisting God right now and you're frustrated and you're pained, let me tell you something, you ought to be thankful that you feel it. Because when you stop feeling it, that means God has removed himself from you. And that's a bad place to be. He's given you over. That's a bad place to be. Our son John, our youngest boy, like so many before him, and even now, really pursued his own desires, taking a very hard stage left, and he gave me permission to share this. For a number of years, just the bane of my existence, quite frankly. But in spite of his actions and the results of his actions that got him into trouble, and deep trouble at times, he wouldn't turn back to God. I can remember sitting down with him one day and saying, is this going to be it? And it was just a glaze. There's just a glaze. I thought, surely... The hammer on him is going to turn him back. But it wasn't turning him back. Solomon said, crush a fool and a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Have you ever read that? You see, some of you are still back there right now. That's exactly where you're at. You've been hammered with the circumstances of life. It may be your work. It may be your family. It may be relationships. But God is hammering you, and you're not getting it. The glaze is still there, you know. I'm around that which is holy. But holiness doesn't come by osmosis. Remember in chapter 1, we said, when Haggai first said, consider your ways, the Hebrew means set your heart on your ways. The idea is take the map of your life, not the forward map, but the backward one, and track it. Look at it. Look at your frustration. Are are there frustrations all over it? There may be a reason for this. So Haggai is saying, look behind you. And then he says, look in front of you. Verse 18 where he says, consider carefully from this day forward. Now, it's the 24th day of the ninth month. That was the day Haggai was delivering this message. It's around Christmas time, as I said. God wants us to mark milestones in our lives. We do it all the time. Otherwise, we mark birthdays and Holidays and graduation days and wedding days and anniversary days. And the list goes on and on. How about spiritual days? How about the day of your salvation? 
I mean, there is a day when you cross from death unto life. Did you know that? There is a day when you go from darkness to light, from sin to salvation, from hell to heaven. There is a day. And if you're really, really young when that day occurs, sometimes you, you don't remember. And if, if nobody really told you to mark the day, I get it. But don't deny the fact that there is a day. There is a day when one crosses over from death unto life. Have you had that day? I mentioned my son because, you know, it's very evident. He's just a different person. I, I, I sat down with him recently. I said, I said, so what happened to you, John? And he looked at me and said, Dad, God changed my heart. And it was very evident that God had changed his heart. God had just changed his heart. He said, I think I came to Christ about seven or eight months ago. I know I prayed when I was younger, but it meant nothing. It did nothing. And now I know that I was not a Christian. God is after our hearts. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong to those whose hearts are loyal to him. Have you read that? Salvation is a heart issue. Dedication is a heart issue. Reconciling with others is a heart issue. Walking away from some substance abuse is a heart issue. If you just walk away because somebody put some parameters around you, that isn't a heart issue. You might change externally, but you haven't changed internally. God changes you inside, things change. And you mark, those are epic moments Never to be forgotten moments. When, when you're, Jesus talked about somebody going to the altar to give their gift, and there they remember, you remember that you have some ought with your brother. You leave your gift, you go reconcile with your brother, then you present your gift. This is the problem here in Agai's day. They were making offerings, but they were defiled, not physically, but spiritually on the inside, just like some of you. And just like me, I've, I have found myself defiled at times. Where God is challenging me to get alone with him and cry out to him and walk away from something or walk to something. And then when I do it, they become epic moments. You look back and then look at what God is doing in the day, on the day, right now, this day. And if you're going to do that, you need to look inside, do you not? Right? Right? And finally, look ahead. Verse 19, he says, Is there still seed in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they've not yet produced, but from this day forward, I will bless you. The time was late December. In Israel, that's when you're, that's when you're sowing the wheat. That's when a lot of this stuff, these things are just budding. The farmer plows, plants, and then prays for the precious rain. And if it comes, he begins to plan for the future. As noted, these plants and trees had produced a frustratingly meager crop for them. Year in and year out for 16 years. 
They weren't getting it. Now they've turned back to God, and God's saying, you've turned back to me. I'm going to bless you. I don't know how that blessing was going to, but in back, in back in Old Testament times, that blessing usually was materialistic. There's no guarantee of that, but I'll take the blessing, whether it's material or spiritual. Amen? And here, let's just wrap it up with this. I got a few questions for you. Mark them down, because this is where we end. We're talking about looking, looking back. Look at the here and now. Look at this day. Look to the future. Look at your worship. Seriously, look at your worship. We just sang about the heart, right? Is it acceptable? Is your worship acceptable to God? Or is it perfunctory? Is it lackluster? Is it just routine and rote? Look at your closest friends. Are they godly? Do they direct your thoughts to God? Don't get me wrong. I think every follower of Christ should have unsaved friends, and lots of them. But, you, but your closest friends should be those who will bring edification into your life and holiness. Look at your most frequent thoughts. Are they pure? Are they spiritually profitable? Look at your frustrations. Are they God's attempt to get your attention? And look at your past. Seriously. We've already said this, but I'm I'm circling back. Look at your past. Does your life now look any different than it did then? If the answer is no, then you better look really deeply inside. Because holiness is not communicable. You need to fall upon the mercy of the living God to make you holy. I read an old Puritan prayer the other day and one little line just captured me. As the writer said, remove the fuel of my sin, watch this, and may I prize the gain of a little holiness, end quote. Look at your life. Has it been redeemed? Listen, the Son of Man, by his own purpose statement, came to seek and to save that which is lost. That which is unholy. That's you. That's me. And he's seeking you. If you've never had a time in your life where you seriously examining yourself from the inside out would say, you know what? I'm a religious girl. I'm a religious guy, but I've never been redeemed. And I've relied on the holiness of a hundred other things, but I've never fallen upon the mercy of a holy God who will give me his holiness by the virtues of his son. If you've never had a time and you just placed your faith completely in Jesus who died and rose again for you, then then do so from your heart because he's after your heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be made holy. God's holiness will be applied to you by the virtues of his son because you have no holiness in and of yourself.
Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the, the story, the messages, and the introspection that is brought our way through the prophet Haggai, who through simple illustrations, Lord, has reminded your people and did remind your people that the reason for their struggles were simply their own. And we've been reminded today, Lord, that while we might be around holy things, a holy family, holy parents, a holy church perhaps, and hearing holy messages from your holy word, hanging around with holy people, those things do not make us holy. But they do remind us, Lord, of how great you are. And we thank you for holy people that you've placed into our life that point us to you. But I pray, Lord, you being the God who's after our hearts would cause us from our hearts to turn to you. Those here who don't know Jesus for the first time, they would be saved. And those, the rest of us who do know Jesus, Lord, that we would turn back to you repeatedly and confess known sin and even unknown sin. So much of this revelation of the people of Israel in this day, Lord, they just didn't even realize until you revealed it to them. May you reveal to us as well. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name.